Um, and so just yesterday, in New York City, a young man was arrested for setting fire to seven synagogues and yeshivas in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and writing some deeply uncharitable things on another temple. The man is uh, ironically named James Polite, and you would expect him to be uh, a member of, of one of these groups, one of these uh, white power groups that we've been hearing so much about this past week. Uh, in fact, he was an African-American gentleman who was raised by a Jewish family, a Jewish foster family, who attended Brandeis University on a scholarship given to him by the New York Times, uh, and who then had a job, and this is irony doing its work again, at uh, New York City Hall's Bureau of Fighting Hate Crimes. I tell you this um, in great sadness, uh, because I think it is an indication that the times we live in are deeply troubled, and that the hate that we're facing, uh, some of us uh, uh, reckoning with it seriously, uh, profoundly, for the first time ever, is not limited to a specific political conviction, partisan affiliation, geographic location, or any other kind of disposition that we could isolate and say, well, our only problem is X. These are very dark and troubled times. And in times like this, we turn to the voices that give us hope and that give us solace. And I wish I could stand here and offer anything on a grand operatic scale. Uh, I wish I knew how to solve some of the problems uh, and some of the rifts that are tearing us apart. I don't. Uh, and judging by our political class, I doubt that they do too. But what I can do uh, is offer you a story uh, of a particularly dark time in my life uh, and, and the man who came to my rescue. As the introduction said, I was born in Israel. Um, my father was the oldest son of one of the wealthiest families uh, and spent his days doing what older sons of wealthy families do, which is as little as possible uh, and having as much fun as possible. And at some point when he was 35 and I was 12, my grandfather called my father for the talk. Now, if you've ever seen Dallas or Knott's Landing or Dynasty, you know the talk. It's when the rich man calls his playboy wayward son and says, you have to get a job. And my father said, okay, what should I do? And he was, uh, came of age in the 1960s. And so he believed in this adage of follow your heart, you know, do what you love. And so he decided to do what he loved. Uh, and what he loved turned out to be robbing banks. Um, and tragically, he happened to be extraordinarily good at it. Uh, he was an innovator, an inventor. He was the Elon Musk of the stick-up job. He would rob a bank, drive around the corner into a truck up a ramp he had custom-made, where he would stop and like some mad philosopher king, he would ponder the one uh, true essential question of bank robbing, which is, where is the last place in the world you would ever look for a bank robber, now is the time for anyone interested in that line of work to pay very close attention, because the answer is the last place you would ever look for the bank robber is, of course, the bank. And so my father would turn right around, uh, and he would take off his jacket and his helmet, and he would leave his gun in the car, and he would step right back into the bank, 
and the bank would then be uh, crawling with police officers, and they would say, sir, you have to leave, this is a crime scene. And he would say, no, please, let me just deposit my cash. And they would say, fine. And he would deposit the money he had just robbed two and a half minutes earlier back into that exact same bank. Uh, and this is the 80s before computers making all the cash virtually untraceable. Uh, in short, this was a very, very good gig. Until it wasn't. Because at some point, he was arrested. And when he was arrested, um, the community where we lived in a small town named Herzliya, right off Tel Aviv, went directly into Shivamut. What do you do when tragedy strikes? You knock on the door with obscene amounts of food. Uh, and so here were all our friends and neighbors, uh, and here were all my friends and neighbors, and I was at that point a 13-year-old boy, and 13-year-old boys, it, it would not surprise you to hear, much like 41-year-old boys, are not very adept at handling their emotional feelings. Uh, and so instead of actually sitting down and talking to me, my friends made me mixtapes. Now, this was the early 90s, uh, and so most of the mixtapes were absolutely god-awful. I'm talking Swedish pop, German techno, things that I would not uh, afflict on, on any peace-loving audience. Uh, and so I, I tossed most of these aside, but one cassette tape, those were indeed the days, uh, one cassette tape intrigued me, because on it, uh, there was a picture of a, of a, of a kind of a sad-looking man, uh, and the title of the cassette was Songs of Leonard Cohen. And in my evangelism, I thought, Cohen is a Jewish name. I would listen to this one first. And I put the cassette in my uh, prized possession, my little yellow Sony Walkman Sport. You know, remember that wonderful, you know, bulky thing? Um, and I pressed play, and my life changed forever. Not because I uh, could understand any of the words, because at the time I was not yet blessed with the command of, of the English language. But there was something <clears throat> about that man's voice that assured me that he was speaking the truth. There was something in that man's voice that seemed to come from a different place. And I decided, uh, first of all unconsciously and, and later uh, obsessively, that I would make it my life's mission to understand uh, what he was talking about and where he came from. Uh, and after some decades and one book and the great honor and privilege uh, of his friendship, I realized, and I know this may sound crazy, that he was a prophet. Not, not in the uh, you know, silly literal word of like, oh, these are the people who would win the $1.6 billion mega lottery numbers, but, but in the biblical Old Testament type of sense, uh, in the Hebrew Bible sense of having your pores open uh, to absorb all these particles of truth and beauty that are all around us, but most of us are just too busy and troubled to see. And so I want to tell you a little bit about his life um, not because I think there's anything particularly unique uh, about its circumstances, but because I think that in his work, in his art, and his, in his spiritual message, uh, there is comfort and solace for all of us today, particularly today, particularly here, particularly in these troubled times. So Leonard was born um, to a very wealthy family, I identified right away, uh, in Montreal, Canada, and uh, 
much like myself, lost his father at a fairly young age. Um, and when he did, um, he was practically raised by these two great clans, two great sides of his family that really represent the two great clans of, of contemporary American Judaism. Uh, on the one side were the Cohens, builders of things, the types of guys who like to see their names and cornerstones of buildings. Leonard's great-grandfather bought some land in uh, a country then called Palestine about 17 years before Theodor Herzl had crazy ideas to start up this movement called Zionism. They built up a, a synagogue in Montreal called Shara Shamaim, the Gate of Heaven, uh, which already tells you a lot about their intentions. It was a sort of place where uh, I think as recently as 1986, you still had to come to services in top hats and morning coats. Uh, I own this jacket. It's the one I wear to show. Uh, I don't think I would have qualified there. On the other hand, was Leonard's maternal grandfather, the Rabbi Solomon Klinitsky Klein, whose nickname, which I think was meant as a compliment, was the Prince of Grammarians. Uh, called that because he wrote entire books about Torah and Talmud without once consulting any kind of Wikipedia-like or book uh, to, to you know, kind of supplement his immense knowledge. And he would put young Leonard on his knees and he would read to Leonard very different stuff than the stuff you hear on these solid, uh, staid Shabbat mornings in Shar Shamayim. He would talk to Leonard about the prophets. I don't know when was the last time you had the pleasure of reading the prophets, but it's mighty stuff. Uh, a lot of it is profound. Some of it is quite profane. Uh, and in these tales of, uh, of, of sex and doubt and passion, uh, Leonard found a lot to stir his soul. So then, as so many young people do, uh, he reached the age uh, in which you ask yourself the inevitable question, well, what do I do with all these stirrings? Uh, how do I combine this into one profession that would make sense? It's not like you could go to your guidance counselor and say, I'm interested in either dentistry or prophecy. Is there any kind of <laughs> graduate program that I could go to? And so he decided uh, to do the one thing that kind of came naturally to him, which was become a poet. Um, and here's how good Leonard Cohen was as a poet. Uh, in 1959, just after his first uh, book of poets uh, came out, the uh, CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, came out with a book, with a, with a documentary film about four Canadian poets. Uh, in typical crazy Canadian fashion, they named the documentary Four Canadian Poets. Uh, that was the working title because by the time they were done with editing, it had a different title. The new title was, Ladies and Gentlemen, Mr. Leonard Cohen. You could watch it on YouTube, it is absolutely astonishing. It shows uh, a young man in his 20s, occupying stages, uh, speaking with this voice that wasn't quite the voice we know from the recordings, but that, uh, that kind of quivers with a sense of moral urgency, that is not afraid to speak about questions of, of morality, of faith, of community, questions that at the time, and this is just you know, a beat after the beats, were considered really uncool. Um, if this was me, and people were paying 
hundreds and thousands of dollars for me to just stand and read my poems, I would probably try to find a way to do it for as long as I could. Leonard quit after three collections of poetry. And the reason he did is because he didn't feel he was telling the truth. He was too busy making up pretty words. It's not what he wanted to do. He didn't want to fool people. He wanted to really try and find some kind of deeper connection. So he thought maybe writing novels would be a better way. Uh, and the same exact thing happened. Two astonishing, astonishing novels that I, I highly recommend uh, if, if you have the time and the wherewithal. After which he had the same idea. Something was off. He didn't want to be an entertainer. He wanted to be something more. He went and gave a speech close to his 30th birthday in a setting not so different from this one. And he said, I'll tell you what my mission in life is. He said, religion is like a little bird. It's like a canary that has flown out of its cage. Now the priest will come to the old lady who owns the canary and said, don't worry, he'll be back. But the prophet knows better. The prophet, he said, chases the bird. And Leonard wanted to chase the bird. And after some nights of perhaps drinking too much and perhaps listening to too much Bob Dylan, he decided that the best way to do it was to sing. And right away, he discovered, as he was starting his musical career in his late 30s, that he had tremendous talent. The talent for being at the wrong time at the wrong place. Because these were now the late 60s. And in the late 60s, something profound happened in American culture. These energies that have always moved uh, this country, these religious tremors that once made entire tent revivals shake, were no longer held captive in churches and synagogues and their old places of haunting. Instead, they were out there in the streets. They were out there in rock music. And the people who were at the height of that time's popularity reflected that mad energy. Here you have Jim Morrison, a chubby kid who ate a whole bag of acid and woke up one morning looking like the second reincarnation of Christ, taking a photo of himself on that famous album cover, holding his hands to the side. And he's singing about breaking on through to the other side. Here you have Janis Joplin reducing the entirety of human speech into this primordial howl. Here you have Jimi Hendrix taking the whole blues chord and jamming it into one, the whole blues scale and jamming it into one crazy mad chord. These were times of ascendance. Uh, we see this best as we see everything culturally best in the Beatles. Uh, in 1963, they, uh, 1964, they released an album called uh, Rubber Soul. And if you listen to it, it's a very good album. Uh, it sounds a lot, by Paul McCartney's own admission, like what happens when you listen to a lot of Motown and then go to some studio in London and try to sound like Smokey Robinson. Uh, and it's wonderful. Nine months later, they release another album called Revolver. And it sounds like nothing, nothing that had come before it. It sounds like John Lennon asking, which he did, the, the engineer at the recording booth to loop the sound back through the sound system so he sounds, and I quote, like a singing Dalai Lama chanting on a mountaintop accompanied by a thousand dancing monks. 
That is because what these men and women wanted to do was to capture that essence in the air, to capture the spirit. And Leonard Cohen did something different. Leonard Cohen, performing in many of the same concerts, looked like Jim Morrison's accountant. (laughs) He was a decade older. He came on stage. He sang songs that were quiet and reflective. He was given by the uh, ever-witty British press the nickname Laughing Len, and uh, it was frequently suggested that you may also want to buy some razors with his albums because you may feel like slitting your wrists. (laughs) There was something about this message, about this contemplative, sad music, about the tone that really didn't sit right with the times. And so Leonard dashed away in this industry, finding some fans, but nothing like fame. And then, collectively, uh, in the course of one year or so, we made uh, a tragic discovery. We discovered that it wasn't actually possible to do what Jim Morrison had recommended. It wasn't actually possible to break on through to the other side. Because there's no other side. There's only here. There's only us. There's only earth and other humans to live with. And one by one, all these rock and roll messiahs with grand, big, metaphysical ambitions dropped dead. Morrison, age 27. Hendrix, age 27. Joplin, age 27. And then rock and American culture faced this tremendous crisis. What do we do now? We believed it was a moment of redemption. Now all of our heroes are dead and all of our messages are shattered. What do we do? And it will not surprise you at all to learn that the answers, very much in line with what we're feeling and going through right now, uh, came from two different directions. The first answer was offered by uh, loudmouth know-nothings who said, you don't need any talent or even ideas or even anything else, even equipment, to play music. Uh, All you need is a chord or two, and we could make something beautiful, and we could call it things like punk or new wave or no wave, and it has tremendous energy, and it's very moving. And some people loved it, and some people do still, like me. And the other answer was the opposite. The other answer was offered by the technocrats of music. You know, people like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, who said, here's how you make music great again. You play 73-minute-long tracks that feature 383 instruments, because bigger is better, and we are expert musicians. That gave you progressive rock, that gave you heavy metal, that gave you large stadium bands that dominated the 80s. But here's what neither side gave anyone. That feeling, that feeling of truth and beauty that I felt that day when I listened to Leonard Cohen. And all throughout that time, Leonard Cohen did his best to hold on to a career. In 1984, in the middle of this process I'm describing, he came to Walter Yetnikoff, who was then the head of uh, Columbia Records. And he said, Walter, I I have a a new song to play. And he plays this uh, tune uh, that I don't know if you've heard. It's called Hallelujah. Uh, And Yetnikoff listens very carefully and says, gee, Leonard, we all know you're great, but what we don't know is that if you're any good. 
and he does not put out the album. The album, uh, Various Positions, only came out in England, uh, and we owe it to the British uh, rock publishers uh, to even have having known that song at all. Uh, and so Leonard kind of tries to find his way, uh, continues to work, continues to write, continues to record, continues to handle and struggle with his own depression, uh, raise his own family. And then in the 90s, something magnificent happens. All of a sudden, a new generation of musicians who grew up on his music come of age. People like you too. And they say, wow, that is the sound of truth. That is the sound of, of the real art that we've been looking for. And they start putting out not just tribute albums, but also encouraging Leonard to record music, new music of his own. And Leonard being Leonard, he does the only thing that makes sense to him uh, at the height of such newfound fame. He packs it up and he moves to Mount Baldy outside Los Angeles to serve as a uh, Zen monk for five and a half years. He can't handle this sense of success because it doesn't really make sense to him. His mission is strange to him. The idea that you're out there in front of a crowd, that you're talking to people, strikes him as very odd. He would often say, every night I go out there and I sing to 60,000 people about, Suzanne takes you down. These people don't know Suzanne. I wrote the song to a woman. Um, he often quipped, uh, which is, I think, just a little too true for comfort. He was like, you know, I wrote most of my songs uh, trying to appeal to women, and if that didn't work, I tried to appeal to God. And to stand with these very intimate ballads in a room full of strangers killed him. Felt deeply, deeply embarrassing and deeply intellectually dishonest. It was not the kind of connection he could make. And so he retired. He still put out some albums. Uh, one of them was accurately uh, but uncharitably described by the rock critic Robert Christogau as old man's music. But he was content with the direction his life took. Until one morning, when someone knocked uh, on the door of his daughter's store in Los Angeles and informed her that Leonard's former business manager had stolen not only the entirety of his life savings, but also, much more vexing, the right to most of his songs. And that if he wanted to continue and survive at the age of 65, he had no choice but to go back on the road, which terrified him, which broke his heart, which was the best thing that's ever happened to him. Because when he went right back on the road in the early 2000s, he learned that two things had happened that are both nothing short of miraculous. The first is that he had learned finally, after decades, how to be Leonard Cohen. How to sing these songs in a way that truly resonates and that truly connects with people. How to contain the love and admiration that people had for him. How to manage these concerts. And if any of you were fortunate enough to see him perform, 
you know that a Leonard Cohen concert was like nothing else. It was like a religious gathering. There was a hum that moved. I see some people smiling in the audience. I'm very grateful for it. Um, there's a hum that permeated the hall that felt like people truly coming together. And at the same time, we had also learned how to listen to Leonard Cohen. We listened or learned that breaking on through to the other side is nice, feels good, but it's not true. What's true is this line that was read in the introduction that I think about every day. Ring the bells that still could ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. It took us so long to learn that. It took him so long to learn that. But once we all did, his ascendance, the last chapter of his career, was so incredibly meaningful. Not only because he put out wonderful new albums and went on tour and really enjoyed an uncommon late-in-life artistic renaissance. His last couple of albums are, in my opinion, in the opinion of many, uh, some of the most wonderful he's ever put out. But also because he found a way, as he always did, of articulating that thing that we needed to hear so badly right now. I thought about him a lot in that very long drive from New York City down to Pittsburgh, feeling very grateful that he wasn't here to feel the pain that we all feel, but equally as grateful that we have his guidance. Because in Pittsburgh, I saw three things that fit in with his spirit wonderfully. Three things that are in no way, shape, or form any kind of panacea that could cure the deep hurt each and every single one of us is feeling right now. But three little things that we could keep in our hearts and continue to remember that are right out of the Leonard Cohen songbook. The first thing that I saw was that the Jewish community in Pittsburgh seemed to operate um, or to follow an emotional arithmetic that was very similar to the emotional arithmetic that I had the privilege of experiencing in half a decade of friendship with Leonard. And that emotional arithmetic is very simple. Always multiply, never divide. I come from New York City where the synagogue you don't go to is just as important as the one you do go to. Uh, where memberships in these institutions are a very deep measure of uh, your affiliation and belonging. And I was shocked and delighted to see in Pittsburgh people belonging to several shows. Saying, oh, we could go to one Shabbat here because we like the cantor. And another Shabbat there because we like some of our friends in that community. To see a community that sometimes chooses in Shabbat Shuvah between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to elect one rabbi who would give a collective speech to the whole community. To see this real coming together, which was the real coming together that was incredibly meaningful to Leonard. In my book, I have the pleasure of recounting a traumatic moment in the festival on the Isle of Wight in 1971. Um, some vandals had 
thrown uh, off the security fences and a festival designed for 200,000 concert goers deteriorated into a festival that now had to accommodate 750,000 concert goers. Uh, the violence was so intense that at some point the doors who were performing uh, right before or shortly before Leonard did uh, had uh, asked to shut off the lights because they were afraid of being hurt. Uh, Joni Mitchell was assaulted on stage. Chris Christopherson was hit with a bottle. It was complete chaos. Jimi Hendrix, in his last performance, was standing on stage. Someone threw a Molotov cocktail on the stage. The stage was burning. Hendrix was so high on cocaine that he didn't even notice, but it was complete terror. There was only one person left to play. That was Leonard. And he came out. This was three in the morning. And people watching him said, they're going to kill this middle-aged Jew. If Jim Morrison and Chris Christopherson and Joni Mitchell did nothing, what would this accountant do? And this modern-day rabbi walks out and he looks at the crowd and he starts telling them a story about how he was young and his father took him to the circus and everyone held matches up together. And he said, here's, um, here's the only lesson that you need to learn here. You may think that that individual light that you hold has great power to burn things down. But the only power that it truly has is when it joins together with all the other lights in this audience. Together, we're strong. Alone, we're just lights that could be extinguished quickly. The second lesson I learned in Pittsburgh is about knowing your place. I was delighted and so deeply moved to see people who were so rooted in the sense of community. Not the idea of community. Not the, uh, you know, aesthetic pleasure of community. But the actual place. Showing up. I can't tell you how happy I was and how grateful that the campaign that I assume some of us in this room had participated in just yesterday was called Show Up for Shabbat. This notion of showing up together to a Jewish place, any Jewish place, and sitting together, as I saw people in Pittsburgh do hours, just hours, after these attacks, going together to the JCC, going together to a shul, going together to everyone's house, was so deeply beautiful and really moving. Which leads me to the third principle, and the one that I think that Leonard would have been delighted by the most. When we attended the uh, memorial service last Sunday to the victims of the massacre in Pittsburgh, um, we were sitting in a hall, the Soldiers and Sailors Monument, uh, some of you may know it, in Pittsburgh. And on the desk behind us, or above us, uh, were some pretty meaningful words that were uttered on November 19, 1863. Best known to us as the Gettysburg Address. And those last lines of the people, for the people, by the people, they really pass us by sometimes. Like some sort of general sentence or cliche out of a history book. But to see the actual people there embodying this principle moved me immensely. Because the people in Pittsburgh weren't waiting 
with all the wonderful help that they were getting from the local politicians, from law enforcement, from federations, from communal leaders, from people whose job it is to help. The people in Pittsburgh were not waiting for anyone to step in and do something. They understood instinctively, as Leonard had understood instinctively, in fact, as Leonard had dedicated his entire life and career to doing, that really the only panacea, that the only cure that we have is twofold. First, it's just to love one another. Just to be here despite all the difficulties, despite all the differences, and work together to show each other how much we mean before, God forbid, we perish away. And the second commandment is to do so in a way that transcends above the mundane. We all have so many temptations, and believe me, rock stars in particular, to lose track of what it is that we're doing. There's 700 hours of great stuff on Netflix that I'd like to watch tonight. There are children to raise. There are businesses to run. There are health issues to deal with. It is so easy for us to completely lose track in all of that. But if we don't, if we choose to do something truly meaningful, spiritual, Jewish, if we choose to follow the light of Leonard, the light of the people in Pittsburgh, and the light of so many others, who understands that the only way we could fight all this darkness, the only way we could produce meaning, is to remember that this incredible tradition we come from offers us a tremendous amount of comfort. It is not the comfort of instant karma. It is not the comfort of rebirth. It is not the comfort of a Messiah who comes and sweeps us all. It's the comfort of hard work. It's the comfort of community engagement. It's the comfort of making this world just a little bit more perfect. Shortly before he died, I had a chat with Leonard and we got to talking about this idea of chosenness and, and what it meant. And, you know, some people see it as this troubling concept, this idea of one people being somehow set uh, apart or above from the rest. That's not a concept that we have a really easy time dealing with. And Leonard said something very interesting, which actually, miraculously, or not, because I actually don't believe that there are any coincidences, relates to the Parsha we read the same weekend as the massacre in Pittsburgh. It's that moment in which Abraham is informed by God that two cities are going to be destroyed, and stands there and wrestles with God on behalf of people he doesn't know says to God, if you find 50 righteous people, would you spare the cities? Well, what about 40? Do I hear a 30? <laughs> no, as we all know, because we've read the book once or twice, Abraham doesn't succeed. Cities of the plain are destroyed. But, Leonard said, that is exactly, right then and there, what chosenness truly means. It means accepting the responsibility, not just for yourself, but for everybody else. 
That is a great burden. But I know of no better privilege. And all I have to say to that, in the words of my rabbi and teacher, is hallelujah. Thank you. We will have an opportunity to uh, have a question and answer period uh, in a moment. Um, I'm sorry for, uh, for the speech tonight. Uh, I have a little jet lagged. I spent the last uh, 16 days in Israel. Uh, I was going to try to do this without writing, and my wife looked at me and said, are you crazy? Because I think I would ramble on longer than I wrote. So uh, good evening. My name is David Sickfeld, and I am the annual campaign chair for the Jewish Federation of Northeastern New York. I want to first thank everyone for coming in tonight and for your support of your federation. During the past year, I've been promoting the good work that your federation has been able to fulfill through your generous financial support. Your federation operates and supports many local programs and initiatives, allocates resources to the local agencies and synagogues, and grants vital support for the benefit of Israel and the Jews through the world, throughout the world via the Jewish Agency for Israel and the Joint Distribution Committee. Our local support includes, but surely is not limited to, the chaplaincy services and programs for the elderly, including implementing programs to ensure that trained professionals and volunteers visit area nursing homes, assisted living facilities, and people's residences to bring Judaism and support to our elders. Means-based scholarships so that dozens of ch local children each year are able to have enriched Jewish experiences at schools, uh, camps, and trips to Israel, statistically the best link to ensuring a Jewish continuity. Funding our local participation in the Harold Greenspoon's Life and Legacy Program that will ensure the health and longevity of our community's various endowments. A mandatory lifeline to help the survival of our local agencies, schools, and synagogues training educators how to teach about Israel and the Holocaust in the classrooms and lecture centers, and funding our regional participation in Harold Greenspoon's PJ Library program. You have the power to ensure the vitality and long-term viability of our Jewish community through your continued support of your federation. You have the power to ensure that the needs of our local Jewish community are met, in addition to supporting Jewish causes and Jews throughout the world the nation, and globally, especially with our unwavering and support of the citizens of the State of Israel. You have the power to ensure that the good work and the mission of your federation will continue to be fulfilled. As I mentioned, during the past couple of weeks, my wife and I have traveled the State of Israel, from the Gaza-Egypt border crossing to the Syrian border in the Golan Heights, from the Jordan Valley to the beaches of Tel Aviv and Herzliya. I attended the Federation's GA event in Tel Aviv. I joined a portion of our Federation's mission to assist a region in Eshkol. I joined a group of other Capital Region members to the northern Israel and spent a day in the Gush Etzion, a cluster of Jewish settlements located in the Jordan Mountains directly south of Jerusalem and Bethlehem in the West Bank, a strategic, historical, and mandatory presence to ensure the security of Israel. The conversations I had with Israelis within these various locations, the presentations heard at the GA, the experience of witnessing the horror and terror inflicted upon Israelis on a daily basis, and the understanding of the topography, 
of seeing through my own eyes that mandate the security borders and settlements existing today make it clear. While the actions and issues which Israel faces on a daily basis are extremely complicated, for American Jews it must be very simple. Our support of the Jewish state within secure borders must be an absolute and non-negotiable. In our visit to the Eshkol region, we saw the desert bloom with acres and acres of tropical fruit trees and banana bushes, as well as all other vegetables and fruits that you can imagine. Agricultural communities using technology, innovation, and resilience to make the desert land that was once uninhabitable into lush farming communities, we witnessed the construction of a fortified grade school compound that will allow up to 2,500 school student children from within the Eshkol region to feel safe and to engage their studies in one location. Within five miles of the Gaza's reach, each building and each courtyard is being built to ensure the safety of the children while maintaining an enriching and pleasing learning environment. However, on the Gaza side, they're launching dozens of balloons each day with explosive detonating devices that are causing the loss of agricultural land, resources, and animal life. Using the east-west winds streaming from the Mediterranean Sea, these extremely inexpensive devices, a few hundred dollars in American dollars, fly a half a mile in the air and then randomly land, causing devastation, economical and agricultural, at the cost of tens of thousands of dollars each day to control the brush fires caused by these simple devices. There's simple no, there is no simple solution to this ongoing onslaught. The Israeli children can no longer look at a simple balloon with childhood glee. Our friends in the Eshkol region need our financial support to ensure first responders have the equipment needed to combat these daily fires and ensure their safety at the same time. They are now using modified truck beds as fire trucks so they can reach numerous fires each day that are once started in multiple locations. On the Gaza side, they're launching crudely made rockets from thousands of tons of humanitarian aid that Israel transports to Gaza on a daily basis via the Gaza crossing, including fertilizer and food supplies, water and sewage piping. These rockets are made with minimal cost to Hamas, under $100 each, as Israel supplies them with the raw materials to do so. But costs to Israel and the U.S. are about $40,000 per Iron Dome interceptor rocket launched to down these Cosm rockets before causing harm in populated areas. Seconds to react, but the psychological repercussions for the children and adults may never dissipate. On the Gaza side, every Friday night, they light dozens of tires on fire near the border wall next to a small kibbutz community known as Kirim Shalom, approximately 130 people. We visited there. As a dark cloud of burning rubber fills the community each Shabbat, they are unable to see around the houses. They are unable to leave their homes without risk of their health, health and safety. Children start seeking trauma counseling as early as two years old. We asked, why live here as opposed to five miles away? The response was very simple. This is Eretz Yisrael, and this is my homeland. So... Should Israel start bombing launching areas where Gazan children are sending off these balloons or discontinue the supply of thousands of tons of humanitarian aid made on a daily basis from the Gaza border? 
or fire lie of ammo at the children and adults that are lighting tires on fire each week outside the Gaza walls. Can you imagine the headlines and the international outrage? Palestinian children playing with balloons bombed by Israeli rockets supplied by the U.S. Israel discontinues supplying supplies necessary for humanitarian aid and closes border crossing. Israel kills Palestinians holding matches. It's complicated, but it's simple. In the wake of the Pittsburgh massacre and the growing anti-Semitism within the United States and Europe, has our innocence and complacency been shaken? Are we hearing more about white nationalists and neo-Nazis propaganda being circulated on the internet in our local communities with flyers and recruitment? While I strongly believe that the strong and influential Jewish community within the United States is secure, it is clear to me that our support of Israel must continue to be unwavering and strengthened regardless of what political or policy disagreements that we may have with this very young state. In order to ensure the long-term security and support of Israel and its citizens, we must allocate more funds from our annual campaign to support our friends in the Eshkol region and throughout Israel. In order to accomplish this task, without reducing allocations to our local programs, agencies, and synagogues, I'm respectfully requesting that everyone tonight consider a meaningful increase to the annual pledges that will be allocated to causes affecting Israel and its citizens. Through our partnerships with the Joint Distribution Committee and the Jewish Agency of Israel, our grants, some of which would be specifically directed to our sister region in Eshkol, will continue to programs and projects that connect us to Jews around the world and the people in need of everywhere. We cannot thank you enough for being all you have done, and I hope you will continue to provide your Federation of Northeastern New York with the funds it needs to, to, to ensure its success of our mission. You have all had, uh, received envelopes and they're at the table and deposited into the baskets at your table. While I appreciate that most of you might wait until next year to satisfy your pledge, knowing that you intend to contribute today, assist us with our planning tomorrow, especially in our support of Israel. Um, at this point, I would ask the table captains to please hand out the envelopes, and I appreciate your consideration of increasing the pledges for next year.
Well, now we ask if the Federation staff can circulate to collect the envelopes and the table captains to do so. Thank you so much.
We're going to start the question and answer period in about uh, two minutes. Okay, back by popular demand. If everyone could take a seat and we'll have the question and answer. I'm sure some of you definitely have questions. I uh, want to thank again our speaker, uh, Leo Leibovitz, to, uh, for all his, with his insight on the life of Leonard Cohn and his experiences. And now I'm going to open it up for Leo to ask people whether they have questions and uh, he'll control it from here. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for this wonderful speech. Look, you know, at, at times like this, I, I think the, the thing that makes most sense is to just be together uh, and, and make no distinctions between uh, topics uh, and no divisions. And so, really anything, anything, anything we want to talk about tonight, if it's Leonard Cohen or Pittsburgh or Israel or anything goes, um, as long as we're together in the, in the same room, in the spirit of St. Leonard. So far away. Yes, sir. I just made a comment to me here. Um, telling the story of the way you talk about being chosen, not chosen to be better, but chosen to have a responsibility, chosen to be a real life explanation, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I've always had an issue with the chosen concept. That really resonated to me. It's a beautiful, beautiful way to frame it. Thank you. I mean, the. Thank you. Um, I'm completely obsessed with that. In fact, the book I wrote before the book about Leonard was about chosenness. Uh, because it, it's haunted me, uh, again, a lot of things haunt me, because uh, I'm, I'm a Jew, uh, and so I see demons everywhere, right? Um, <clears throat> and, and this idea was, was very weird, and it's, uh, it's especially weird because if you read, um, if you read the biblical story, um, it is kind of a wonderfully strange, flawed story, right? Um, here we are, the foothills of the mountain, 600,000 Israelites, in what is supposed to be the moment in the story where it all finally makes sense, right? We've been working up to this. There have been covenants. There's been Noah. There's been Abraham. Like, this is season five, right? When finally the whole mystery kind of comes together, like on ABC's Lost from a few years back. 
And God comes out and he says, you will be unto me a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Good night, everybody. And, and I imagine the people at the foothills of the mountain being like, uh, excuse me, a couple of questions. So first of all, uh, why us? Why were we chosen? Second of all, what does it mean to be chosen? Are our children automatically chosen after us? Uh, is there fine print here? Can you get unchosen? Uh, these are good questions if God just gave you this mission. Of course, the wonderful, tragic, moving thing is that God never says. And so you're left concluding that uh, to have been chosen is to spend eternity wondering what it means to have been chosen. Uh, and I think it's that capacity for asking, uh, for questioning, rather than rushing to answers, uh, that motivates so much of the Jewish spirit, of the Jewish intellect, of the Jewish soul, uh, because it's this constant anxiety, this constant uncertainty, and this constant asking of oneself, what can we do better? What can we improve? And the question is essential, uh, not to get all too biblical, but shortly after, approximately 40 odd years after said event at the foothills of the mountain, um, you know, Moses sent spies to the, to the promised land, actually way before, because 40 years was as a result. Shortly after the mountain, Moses sent spies to the promised land, and 10 of them come back and say, this, this place is a disaster. There, there are angry giants here, they're sure to kill us. Um, two people say, no, no, we, we see the promise. Uh, because the truth is, and it's, it's, it's miraculous, uh, there's nothing inherently promised about the promised land. The thing that makes it uh, promised, the thing that turns Canaan into anything but another Egypt, uh, is our ability to inherit it and to live in it according to the laws of Torah that demand us to constantly try to be better. Uh, and it's that amazing logic uh, that, that intrigued uh, and perplexed and delighted Leonard throughout his life. It's this notion that you are constantly questioning uh, and the wonderful things that come when you do. Yes, sir? Why, I don't know if you said it, I missed it, if you did, I missed it. Why did you go to Pittsburgh? Because I didn't know what else to do. Um, I, I, um, I served in the Israeli Defense Forces for three and a half years. I've had my share of um, violence. I am no stranger, sadly, uh, to the sight of Jews murdered for no other reason than by being Jewish. Uh, but when this happens in Israel, there is a routine. Uh, you know exactly what to do. A certain kind of music comes on the radio. Uh, we call them, you know, terror attack songs. Uh, because they're very slow and beautiful, and immediately upon hearing them, everyone understands that something terrible happened. Uh, you have this thing that everyone does, and also there's a great comfort not only of being together in a Jewish state, but also uh, of thinking immediately in terms of um, security considerations and calculations. Well, this was done, and now there will be some sort of military operation, and they're not necessarily... Uh, tied together. It's not necessarily a cause and effect, uh, but you don't have that feeling of helplessness. I didn't know, and I still don't know, what to do when this happens in Pittsburgh. Uh, the only thing that made sense to me is to drive down. The only thing that made sense to me is to, to go and, and report. Uh, we did an episode of the podcast. Usually we are uh, three loquacious Jews uh, who have a very hard time shutting up. Uh, this time around, and believe me, it was difficult, uh, we, we were just quiet. 
we just let people in the community tell their own stories and, and shine a light of what they're going through. Um, I just needed to be there to, you know, give a hug, lend a hand, just tell them that, that we're all in it together. Uh, and and I, I saw one thing there that was really incredible. We were looking for people to talk to. And this one person, um, larger than me, if you could believe it, uh, with a bigger beard than mine, if you could believe that, uh, came and said, you know, three, two years ago, um, or three years ago, the, the, his family was living in Paris. And his wife uh, left the hypermarché, the kosher supermarket, moments before that deadly attack there. And he said, that day, we decided to leave. We came to Pittsburgh. And I said, wow, that is spooky. Do you feel the weight of the thing? Do you feel like you never thought it could happen again and now it did? And he said, no, 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 no. After you go through what we went through in Paris or in Israel or anywhere else, you understand that it could happen everywhere. But he said, let me tell you what the difference was. The difference was that in Paris, people said, we're very sorry. There are some politicians, there are some statements, but that was the extent of it. He said, here, it feels very different. Here it feels that the entire community is with us. It made me tear up to see the headline of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, printing in Hebrew, it It made me tear up to sit in my shul yesterday and realize, first of all, not only that it was full at like 9.30 on a Saturday morning. I've never seen it before. But also that half the people there weren't Jewish. There are neighbors and our friends who came to say, today we all are. Today we're all with you together. Um, is it going to happen again? Who knows? Uh, history seems to be full of dark portents. But I think the incredible thing to focus on right now is this strong, wonderful, thoroughly moving support that we seem to be getting almost universal from this community. And if there's any message that you're going to take about America and, and our place in it, I hope that's the message. Yes, sir. Um, Leonard Cohen, as you said, for five years was a Zen uh, mm -hmm. monk. monk. Mm -hmm. uh, where did he perceive himself by the end of his life with respect his relationship with Judaism. We just had a, a conversation. Um, Leonard was an Orthodox Jew. Uh, Leonard was an Orthodox Jew as a kid. Uh, he was an Orthodox Jew growing up, and he was an Orthodox Jew throughout. Uh, the Zen monkness, uh, while strange, uh, was the result of, of a long relationship with a gentleman who passed away three years ago at the age of 108 or seven. Uh, this gentleman by the name of Roshi. Uh, who is Leonard's um, good friend. Leonard liked to joke, you know, if you, if you want to find out uh, meaning of, the meaning of life, uh, spend a lot of time with a Japanese gentleman who doesn't speak a word of English, and that would really help you listen. Um, <laughs> while he was there, he woke up every day at four. Uh, he raked a lot of leaves. He cooked Roshi's meals for him. Uh, he wore the traditional robes, also observed Shabbat. Uh, he never uh, in any way, shape, or form abandoned his faith. And, and in fact, the only uh, time in which I've seen him, both privately and publicly, uh, lose his temper a little bit 
was that when someone suggested that he somehow had converted uh, to, to, to Buddhism uh, or anything of the sort. Uh, he was a man with a, a tremendous capacity uh, and, and, you know, for religious imagination. Uh, but someone whose, uh, if we say, operating, uh, you know, system um, was unmistakably, uh, deeply, profoundly, incontrovertibly uh, in, in Jewish. Uh, he was a, a person who was deeply moved and, and obsessed over these ideas. Uh, I was talking before, if you walked into his house, first of all, you would be struck by how unbelievably modest it was. If you can imagine your grandfather's, uh, you know, third poorest friend, uh, and the kind of you know one and a half bedroom apartment that they had, uh, you would walk in and there would be a little armoire and it had the 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 Hanukkah and the little silver thing for the Nitila Yadaim uh, and the Talmud uh, and and that was it because that was really uh, the the essence of his of his spiritual uh, inclinations and, and learnings. Uh, it had never stopped moving him, uh, and I think this is what gives him the profundity because. He took these ideas seriously. You know, one thing that I thought um, when I started dealing with this, um, I, I'll tell the story like this. When I started writing this book, I really wanted to write a book about Bob Dylan. Uh, but but no, one, no one would give me that contract because, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are about 703 million books about Bob Dylan, and really the world doesn't need another. Um, and so I wrote a book about Leonard Cohen, which is also a lot about Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan's relationship to, to, to spirit uh, is, is very strange. Uh, Bob Dylan is sort of a vessel, right? Bob Dylan uh, receives transmissions from above, and he writes them down, and, and he moves right along. Uh, Leonard Cohen has a much more uh, kind of slow and, and deliberate process. One of my favorite stories is they met uh, once backstage after a concert in Paris, and um, they were... Uh, exchanging their admiration for each other's music. And, um, you know, Dylan said, you know, I really like uh, Hallelujah, how long did I take it to write? And it had taken Leonard something like 13 years, uh, but he didn't want to sign like, you know, that jerk, so 13 years. So he said, oh, you know, three years. Uh, and then he felt the need to say something back, so he told Dylan, oh, I really loved your song, I and I, how long did it take you to write? And Dylan's like, mm, 15 minutes! <laughs> um, the extent to which Leonard really engaged uh, with these ideas, uh, the extent to which it moved him, the extent to which he tried to find a space uh, for, for Jewish spirituality and theology, both in his personal life but also in his art, uh, is perhaps the greatest inspiration to me. Uh, it has changed my life completely. I, I have no interest in doing anything else but following that path. Yes, sir. Um, I will now start talking. I will finish in about seven and a half hours, so everyone <laughs> get comfortable. And uh, you know that is. Um, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you. I'll give you a tip. Because um, three would be too much. Um, I really love New Skin for the Old Ceremony. Uh, this is Leonard after a divorce. Uh, I'll tell the story this way. Uh, it was three days after the start of the Yom Kippur War, and a bunch of Israeli artists who were not immediately. Um, recruited to go fight are sitting in the cafe in Tel Aviv and they're planning a tour of the front line. Uh, and one of them, Oshik Levi, who's still quite famous in Israel, uh, says to his friends, I think that's Leonard Cohen. And his friends say, what? 
It's like, I think that, that, that man in three tables from us is Leonard Cohen. And his friends say, you realize this is Tel Aviv, right? And you realize like a war started three days ago. Do you really think the internationally famous rock star Leonard Cohen would leave everything and come to Tel Aviv in the middle of a war and will be sitting here with us in a cafe? And Oshik said, yeah, I think that's Leonard Cohen. And so he walks up to him and says, are you Leonard Cohen? And Leonard Cohen says, yes, I am. Uh, and and Oshik Levy asked him, what, what are you doing here? And Leonard Cohen said, well, a war started. I didn't know what else to do. And Oshik Levy says, well, I have an idea. And so he gave, uh, he, he, uh, actually, he didn't have a guitar to give, uh, because this is around the 70s. He had to call the army and have someone procure another guitar. <laughs> Uh, and, and they sort of toured the front lines and played um, c- quite amazingly, not just played for the soldiers, but literally played, you know, they would wait for the soldiers to like finish one round of like, you know, bombing, and then they would play like half a song, and then another round. And so most of that album was written uh, during the Yom Kippur War on the front lines. It is very different than anything that came before it. Uh, it is very raw. It has uh, songs like Who By Fire uh, in it. Uh, it is... It is him at his most uh, corporeal, earthly, uh, wonderful, uh, you know, energy. And then the second one that I would say is, is his last. Um, I shudder every time I hear, you want it darker. Uh, this is a song that was recorded in 2015, uh, long before uh, we had made some collective decisions in this country that, uh, that uh, tossed us uh, into the kind of uh, you know, mouth of, of a very big political turmoil. Um, and again, like a good prophet, his ability to capture not just the coming darkness, uh, but, also, but also the way out. Uh, also that same old spirit that urges us uh, to focus on the small things that we can and must do for one another, uh, that urges us to have, you know, Ahavat Israel. Uh, that urges us to engage in, in, in spiritual learnings and, and teachings and actions. Uh, it's all there. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, it's magnificent. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Pleasure.